I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. A few weeks ago, we discussed the worsening COVID-19 situation in Victoria and how it was affecting services, children, families and professionals. Soon after we released that episode, things became even more intense. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews declared a state of disaster and announced Australia's toughest lockdown. Melbourne has effectively shut down and early education services have once again faced a whole new world of policies and funding. Given these changes, we wanted to come back to Victoria and see what this new situation means for the sector there, and we've invited two new Victorian early education professionals to help us do just that. Sarah Riches is the CEO of Early Childhood Intervention Australia, Victoria, Tasmania. ECI Victoria and Tasmania is the peak body for early childhood intervention in Victoria and Tasmania. And Sarah Louise is a Melbourne-based associate for Saman and Slattery, whose professional career spans almost 20 years. Sarah and Sarah Louise, welcome to the Early Education Show. Thank you so much, Liam. Thanks, Liam. Now, well, this is very exciting for us, for obviously, for a couple of reasons. Um, Sarah Riches is known to uh, Leanne and Lisa and I in, in a range of professional contacts. You've been putting up with us for, for quite a while, Sarah. I have. I have been, yes. It's a delight to have you not on. Not real. No, Thank to, well, it's great to finally have you on the show. This is the embarrassment episode where we go, how have we got to episode 133 until we've had both of you on? So having known Sarah for a really long time, but Sarah Louise, who I think has to hold the, the record as the podcast's biggest fan, I think pretty much from episode one, Sarah, four years ago, you've been commenting and sharing and just being so lovely about the podcast as well as look as well as i'm sure being an amazing professional in your own right from our, our perspective your greatest qualification is just loving the podcast and i don't think we need to know more than that that's um, i'm completely happy with that is she oh, you just do such fan? amazing work it may be she's our only fan that could be true that may be why it seems so intense is that she may be the only fan but um sarah it's it's wonderful to have you have you on the podcast thank you so uh, i think we want to start so like i said so we, we actually sort of did this episode two weeks ago. But when we did that episode, things pretty much changed almost a couple of days after we released it. Was, so, it, was it only two weeks ago? Or was oh, it, it was, no, two no, episodes it was ago. Two episodes ago. Because I thought, gosh, it didn't feel like that. Sorry. Time, Sorry, time doesn't work in the same way. I've got no idea what's going on. But um, so I think what we kind of wanted to do tonight was actually do a similar sort of episode. We wanted to talk about what the new measures have meant for children and families and the sector and educators. Uh, and we want to do that while talking to two professionals who are kind of living through these changes. Um, I wanted to start just by giving listeners a really quick overview of the lockdown measures and what they've meant for early education. I am going to kind of zoom through these. I think we'll probably touch on some of them during the chat, but um, I don't think this episode isn't really about those measures, but I, I, I think it's important to give people a bit of a context for what's happening for services and professionals uh, in Victoria. So what's happening is, as, as I sort of said in the intro, Melbourne's uh, in lockdown. It is the strongest and most intense lockdown measures we've seen in Australia far in advance of what we saw across the country in April, in, in, in April, I should say. Um, early childhood education and care, ECEC, is only available to children of permitted workers and vulnerable children. Uh, families must apply for a new access to childcare permit, uh, which must be applied for through the Victorian government. There's been an increase of 30 days extra allowable 
absences on top of the normal 42. Uh, services have been strongly encouraged to waive the gap fee and are able to now do that under legislation. It is important to point out that that is not um, actually a legislated requirement, and that's been a point of contention, I think, uh, since those measures were announced. The transition payment that's available to all services in Australia, which is 25%, has been increased to 30% for affected services, and there are additional payments for services uh, which have a low uh, childcare subsidy percentage, so if waiving the gap fee uh, wouldn't necessarily do uh, a huge amount to, to support them. Uh, it's also important to note probably what hasn't been announced, so earlier childhood educators have still been removed from JobKeeper. There is a kind of vague jobs guarantee as part of these measures, but um, as I'm sure Lisa will probably talk about um, either right after I finish this sentence or a bit later on, um, it's important to note that that guarantee actually only requires services to provide a really small number of hours and shifts to educators. It certainly doesn't guarantee um, the, you know, the, the hours of work they were doing uh, beforehand. But I think that's a pretty, as quick as I can do it, that's, that's kind of the, con- the situation we're in right now. Liam, that was amazing. You actually made it sound logical and sensible. Well, someone taught me to use uh, dot points really well, Lisa, so <laughs> I appreciate that. But I'm saying, given how messy and horrible it must be for you guys, to make it make it sound sense is, you know, kudos. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it. But I think we want to do, what we want to do now is, before we sort of talk about what this has meant for for children, for educators, for families. I, I want to hear, Sarah and Sarah Louise, what this has actually meant for you. So you're both dialing in now. And we should say, in a very rare uh, thing for the podcast, we're, we're filming. We're not filming, but we have our videos turned on for this episode. Background. For, so we've been doing this for four years now. This is episode 133. We always just leave the video off when we record. It's an audio podcast. We often record quite late. We're in our pajamas. Um, we, you know, we're probably hiding the amount of, you know, alcohol or hot chocolate we're drinking at particular times. But um, we, we've actually got them on because I think part of this was around there's a, there's feelings of isolation sort of everywhere at the moment, and it's kind of nice to be able to to see people. So if we sound a bit more awkward than usual, it's because we're not used to seeing either ourselves <laughs> or each other. But um, so that's one of the things we're doing tonight. But I guess that's a segue to saying I might start with you, Sarah. Um, you know, both Sarah and Sarah Louise have families. You're 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 in Melbourne. You are currently locked down. You are calling to us from the middle of this incredible situation. You know, if I, um, I am going to throw to you eventually, but I can't stop talking at the moment. I just I, I remember. I'm not even in Victoria. I remember the announcement of a curfew, and that just as an Australian who's lived in you know this country for so long, the just just I, I really struggled to process that that we were sitting here with the idea that you know one of Australia's biggest cities was in a curfew, but you both have families, you both have jobs, you both have different things, and you're calling to us from what I'm sure are lovely houses, but are houses you're probably close to getting sick of, I'm assuming. But Sarah, you know, starting with you, what, what, how has this lockdown sort of been treating you? When people ask me that question, Liam, I really just say I'm managing my well-being, really. I think it's, it's really tricky, and I think um, – having curfews and five kilometer bubbles and wearing masks. It's, it's, um, it's really just a new way of being, um, homeschooling. I've worked from home myself for a while, so that hasn't been a, you know, a challenge, but having my partner at home as well, it's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a really tricky time for everybody. And what about you? Sarah Louise, I know you've got a quite a young family as well at home. So I do. I've got a two-year-old and a six-year-old. So yeah, we're doing the homeschooling for the preppy. 
um, and my two-year-old because I'm not a permitted worker and my partner's at home as well. He works in hospitality, so there's no work at the moment. Um, so, yeah, we're all just home. We're all just having a great time in our backyard. Um, and, I mean, days like today where it's raining are really tricky because it means that we're indoors all day and we get our one hour to walk around the block and that's kind of it. So I think that lack of physical being in the world is probably what we're struggling with the most at the moment. And I think what, what we're hearing a lot from, for those of us who aren't in Victoria and sort of watching from afar with lots of sympathy and empathy and probably not a not a small amount of, thank God, that's not us, um, is that this this kind of second lockdown is sort of different than the first one. I think the first one, there was this sense of almost solidarity and we were all in this together and there was sort of a goal at the end of it. The second one, from what I've heard, is um, is feeling different for people. Sarah, is that is that your experience? Yeah, I, I think so. I think this second lockdown is a lot harder. I think we homeschooling and working from home were new and interesting, I think, um, in the first lockdown in a way. Um, and, yeah, I think we, we, we went back to our, as much as we could, our normal lives for a really short amount of time before we went straight back into a, in a, to our harsh lockdown. Um, yeah, and I think seeing the rest of the country getting on with things makes it even more isolating. But in, a, in the same way, um, it's nice to be able to see you all out and about at restaurants and um, as well. So isolating, but at the same time, glad that people are out and about and seeing each other and connecting. Well, Sarah, I'm going to pretend my lack of a social life and my lack of sharing it on social media is an act of solidarity with Victoria, whereas that's actually just my life. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to pretend that. Yeah, this week I noticed that the um, the uni students are coming back to the uni and it was such a shock um, yesterday to see it's not so many, but just a small number. It feels really at odds with the environment that has been there for so long. And it's it's nice. People are keeping their distance and they're doing that, but it is really nice to see people sort of starting to socialise and come back. So I just hope that that's in store for you guys very, very soon. There's a bit of survivor's guilt, I think, from those of yeah. us in New South Wales. Like, you know, every time I talk to any of my friends in Melbourne, I just kind of feel like, you know, they're but through the grace of God, go we. And it feels, it actually feels every time you go out and do something, you know, especially when we have good weather as well, it just feels like, oh, God, you poor people. Yeah, and it's a bit unknowable, isn't it, for us, Lisa, really? Yeah, like it, it feels like any minute, you know, we'll be back in as well. Because mm, it happened very quickly in Melbourne. Yeah. Very quickly the numbers spiralled out of control. Um, yeah, it can happen. And, you know, the same as New Zealand as well has gone, you know, Auckland's gone back into lockdown as well after yeah. the 100 days of no cases. So just have to be so vigilant and careful. And it's hard because people seem to forget instantly, like, you know, you, you see people and you just think, do you actually remember about COVID? <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why did you just hug that person? Yeah. Uh, uh, humans. Oh, humans. And, and maybe, Sarah Louise, in terms of um, 
the connection, I think, with other people in the sector. I think that's, for all the challenges we've always had with things like PD and accessing PD, I think the sector's become a really sort of connected place over the last maybe 10 years. Some of that's social media, I think, but some of that's also maybe things like the National Quality Framework bringing people under a particular way of working and, and sort of bringing those spaces together. Um, how, and, and particularly in your role with Smart Slattery, so looking at professional development and consultancy, is that something that's still continuing? Is that more? Is that challenging now? Are you still able to do that work with services or are you feeling like you're actually isolated from... I guess my question is, do you feel isolated just from the work of the sector itself? Yeah, so yes and no. So I feel isolated when I'm talking to educators about, say, their programming and planning or their interactions with children because I'm so removed from it. It's, it's just a conversation. Um, but then if I'm talking about things like policy documents or quips, it's actually a lot easier to sit here and chat and have something up on a screen. And I think you touched on there as well with professional development. I actually think professional development has now boomed because we've got this online access that people from regional and remote areas can actually join in and have a conversation with us. You know, I'm working with services out in Mitchell Shire that normally wouldn't be able to get to Melbourne for PD. And now all of a sudden we can sit here, you know, six o'clock at night and have a professional discussion. So there's, there's pros and cons to it. And, yes, that lack of connection in the physical presence, it's a bit tricky, but I'm able to connect with people now that I never thought I would before. Does it feel a bit... I remember very early in the lockdown I was doing some work on, um, on regulations and it just felt like, oh, my God, this is so divorced from reality, you know, like... Who cares about this right now? But I was, you know, obligated contractually to deliver it. And I just wonder if it's a bit like that. Like, do people really care about the equips at the moment? So it was funny. When we went back into stage three, it really felt like that, that everyone was kind of just over it all. It was all about COVID. It was all about health and safety plans. But then as we've kind of settled into stage four, people have kind of come back on board because I think, you know, there's less children, there's less people in the building, people are working from home and they need something to do. So it's almost like we've done this big 360 and now people are actually really invested in furthering their own development and furthering the service. So, yeah, it's, it's a funny kind of roundabout that's happened. Maybe a bit more time for critical reflection and deeper thinking at this time, Sarah Louise, than they have had in the past. Absolutely. I know the service that I was working at during the first stage three lockdown, we implemented a work from home program and it just meant that one day a week where everyone could just kind of get away from it all and just be with their own thoughts. And the work that came out from those days was phenomenal because everyone just had a little bit of extra time to sit there and think. Oh, what a wonderful idea. Was it expensive to do? Not at all. So all the professional learning was free. It was all online programs. It was professional reading and reflections. Um, and so all it, all it really cost was a day of cover. But our children, you know, we, we didn't have many children at that stage in that first stage three. Um, so really, we weren't really covering anyone. So yeah, that's about being insane. innovative with time. Yeah. Yeah. Great use of time. Well, Sarah, I'm kind of interested from your perspective as well, because you're not only, you know, managing this lockdown as um, 
as a as a professional and as a as a as a parent with a family, but as a CEO. So you're you know leading an organization and a group of people through something that I, I doubt you had a risk plan for, or I doubt was in the budget for when you when you pulled it together for <laughs> for for this year. How has it been leading a team through a time like this? Well, we were already home based, which was handy. So we had already um, had been working from home um, for several months prior to COVID. So we had all of our systems already set up. And so um, that was helpful. That was good. We had our ways of working um, already. I think um, in a way, um, because everything quickly moved to online, we transitioned our PD very quickly online. We also have quarterly forums where as as a sector we get together. So those, of course, went online and through COVID, we decided instead of doing them quarterly, we would do them monthly. So just like Sarah Louise said, we've got members out at Wodonga that I haven't seen for such a long time that I now see coming to those sorts of forums. So, um, yeah, it's been a, um, in a way, a really good opportunity for us to quickly move a whole lot of things online to be a little bit less Melbourne-centric, maybe, um, and reach out further to people in Tassie and um, right across um, regional Victoria as well. Yeah, so in a way it's been a, you know, a good opportunity and hopefully these are some of the things that we can take with us when we transition out of COVID. Do you get the sense though from a... Um, it's interesting, so even here in the ACT, having discussions with people just around this sort of low-level anxiety, just around... Um, I guess for for us, it's the just the potential of things could go wrong. Whereas in Melbourne, you're you're living the experience of of things going wrong. Are they you know discussions you have with your team or with the services you work with about how people just sort of manage that? It's it's such a difficult time for people to be carrying on and doing their jobs during this kind of time. Yeah, we we really have had a focus on the sector's well being. Um, some well-being focused tip sheets that have gone out. We're working with Mental Health Victoria to roll out a, a range of um, mental health and well-being workshops for practitioners as well as managers within organisations. So we've really had a focus on that. From um, internally as well, it's something we focus on as a team. We, you know, people, some of my team members have children with disabilities as well. So it's um, that added stress as well of, you know, making sure that you're keeping your vulnerable families safe at home and you're at home with them. Um, so, yeah, it's something that we definitely have acknowledged and it's a need, yeah, for sure. Wonderful. Well, I think we might start thinking about some of how, what we're seeing out in the sector about the, the impacts of this specific lockdown. And I know that um, Sarah and Sarah Louise not working directly in centres right now, but I know you have connections and engagement and your own sort of anecdotes around uh, some of these things. I think we want to start with educators. I, I've been you know concerned throughout this entire um, process uh, the, or the entire you know sort of era of COVID-19 of what we've been asking educators to do. And, you know, they're the, one of the very few um, sort of sectors that was outside of health that was just sort of expected to keep coming to work uh, to keep the economy going and then to have JobKeeper removed, you know, from them and then to have, um, you know, some of the strictest you know, lockdown 
uh, procedure. And again, just and I know, I know Leanne and Lisa want to talk about this as well, but just for Victorian services to have another complete funding system thrown on them at the last minute, whole new reams of policies to read, whole new FAQs to understand with, I think, you know, 18 hours notice. That might have been generous. I think it may have even been less than that. So I, I, I do want to have a think about what this lockdown has meant for, for educators. Um, I'm not sure who to pick on first. I might maybe Sarah Louise with your more recent work directly in centres um, and your work as we, with, um, in a PD context. But, um, you know, what are you seeing or hearing out there for the sector for educators in Melbourne at the moment? Yeah, so I'm I'm really hearing that morale is low, and it's not it's not a matter of within the service there are problems. So leadership is still strong, and services are still coming together and being there for each other. But this idea of you know we're we're kind of being forced to do something, and we don't really have a choice about it. And I think that's what's really starting to get people down. That you know, yes, they can use that annual leave or they can use their long service. And I'm hearing a lot of that now that educators are dipping into their long service leave just to be at home. And what I worry about with that is that, you know, we started in a stage three lockdown, we got three weeks into that, and then we ended up in stage four. So how long will this go on for? And, you know, for older workers who have been, you know, in the sector for 30, 40, 50 years, who have banked up that long service leave to go on actual holidays, now they're just stuck at home trying to keep themselves safe because they have no other choice. And so I think it's that idea of choice that's really bringing people down. And with leaders, I'm finding that everyone is just burnt out. So they're showing up and they're going to work and they're doing their jobs. But, you know, I check in with my educators every day um, who I'm working with just to make sure everyone's all right. And every second day, it's just, I don't know how I'm here today. I don't know how I'm going to get through this day. I'm exhausted. I'm dealing with this family. I'm dealing with this, you know, this child. What do I do? And I don't have the answers. You know, I'm just here to support and be a friendly face on Zoom. Um, but, yeah, it's it's this idea of burnout. It's, it's just going to, I'm worried it's going to ruin this sector. Sarah Louise, something that um, strikes me is that a lot of the burden is being taken by people who are in those positional leadership roles. What sort of impact do you think it's having on on leaders? I think we might have talked about this with um, Tamika and um, yeah. and Julie. Yeah, um, we, we did, Leanne, yeah, but it was before this kind of intensity. Yeah. We hadn't we hadn't had this really intense lockdown then. Yeah, so I'm interested in that and whether you what you think that means for leaders in the future. So I'm I'm very worried about our young leaders, so the emerging leaders, so the women who the women and men who are coming into director roles, you know, two IC roles, ed leader roles, they're just having all of this dumped on them. And for people who may be in like standalone services or privately run services, they don't necessarily have the network supports that larger organizations do. And I'm very concerned about these people leaving the sector altogether. I was a you know, very fresh director during the first lockdown, and that was very difficult for me. And I'm a, quite an experienced long-term educator. So for these people, you know, I'm working with someone who's only five years in the sector. For her, she doesn't know who to turn to, where to go, you know, where I'm kind of her only support at this time because those networks aren't there. And I, I'm really worried about how they're going to cope at the end of this. So yeah. it's something that we've really got to think about in the for up ahead that we'll actually have leaders and that we'll make sure those emerging leaders are encouraged to remain within the sector. 
what I'm really hoping is that approved providers really step up now and step up and be there for their teams. Can I ask, you mentioned earlier that a lot of people were having to dip into long service leave. Why is that? I think just, just from my own personal experiences and what I'm seeing, during that first stage three lockdown, a lot of people started to take their annual leave. They used all their sick leave. The stress was very real and it was getting to people. So everyone was encouraged to use up the leave that they had. But now we're in this second stage and it's either take unpaid leave and not get paid for this period of time because there's no JobKeeper or dip into the leave that you do have. Which might be okay, so I'm confused. I would have thought that a lot of service staff would have been working from home. Is that not what's happening? It depends on the service and what kind of work there is to be done at home. I think every service is making that decision based on what they've got available. I think this is, it's, it's an interesting question. I think it's highlighting some of the inequities within the sector itself. So there are organizations that have you know even just from an infrastructure perspective it setups and policy setups to enable people to work from home but i can see that that wouldn't be the case for a lot of a lot of organizations where that just isn't something they've considered or been able to figure out so they've lost their jobs or they're being forced to take leave without pay is that what the the issue is it's not that they're being forced to, but I, you know, I know a lot of educators who are in kind of an at-risk bracket who are choosing to stay home during this time, okay. and the work-from-home options aren't necessarily easy for them, especially if they've got younger children or they're looking after older family members as well. Yeah. So what, what, like, I know that you can't give me this answer, but do you have a gut sense of what proportion of services like I'm imagining in my head that most services have only got a few people a few children attending in Melbourne is that right and um, the services that I'm working with are all kind of hitting that kind of 20 to 30 percent mark still of attendance okay yeah. and so do, does that not mean that you only need 20 percent of your staff there like a services actually uh, providers actually, uh, I'm worried that providers are requiring staff to be there when they don't need to be there. No, I think initially there was conversation around that, but I think the union stepped in quite quickly to really promote that if people can work from home, they do work from home. Right. Um, okay. But like Liam's saying that, you know, the IT infrastructure might not be there. People may not have the digital literacy to even be able to use computers and do all those sorts of things. So. Yeah. Yeah. Look, this really frustrates me because it's kind of like if you you don't have to be at the service and if you can't provide that kind of stuff for your staff or they don't have the digital literacy, then they shouldn't actually ha be having to work. It should just be, you know, like this time without pay or sorry time with pay but not at work it's not like you know it's not like employers or providers can demand that people go out there and 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 do work and they have to do work at home because I'm paying you to do work it's a shutdown situation am I making sense yeah absolutely and I think you'll find that providers like to make a hit We'll be doing exactly that. 
but then there will be other providers who just don't understand and don't see it from that perspective. Yeah, I suppose I, I hate that that feeling that if I am paying you, you have to do work even if there is no work to be done. You know, like if I'm paying you because I want you to be here at the end of this and because I've got a legal obligation to keep you here at the end of this in order to get my funding from the government and three-quarters of my income is coming from the government, then what does it matter if you're not sitting at home writing policies or, you know, doing wonderful planning and programming for the next 20 years, you know, like <laughs> go home and survive and look after your well-being and come back as a better refreshed human being or something. Lisa, you're um, the approved provider of the year. So, but I think I think Sarah Richards, you have some thoughts on this. Oh, I was just going to jump in. Um, I think in the kinder sector, they have similar numbers to what Sarah Louise has just mentioned. That probably around twenty percent of kids are still attending kinder. Seventy-five percent are doing homeschooling, and about five percent are. Um, non not engaging, um, so similar. But conversations that I've had with DUT when they've surveyed the kinder sector seem to be that technology wasn't an issue and the sector was quite um, tech savvy and were engaging um, with families online and you know, had that big uptake of their professional development. So I think Liam probably mentioned it before about the um, the differences in the section in that sector. Well, that's probably not a bad segue, Sarah, to talk about um, services and organisations. Now, we talked a little bit about that, I think, in the last question, but obviously, um, services and organisations are again having to respond to a pretty significant, you know, funding and uh, and policy environment than they were dealing with even, you know, five weeks ago, let alone five months ago. Um, Sarah, I know, you know, the work that ECIA does um, involves working with a lot of services and organisations to support the inclusions of children. What are you sort of um, hearing from the sector around just as as organisations, how, how they're coping with yet another, you know, sort of uh, sideways blow in the last little oh, while? It's, it's really interesting because today I had a conversation with a provider, an early intervention provider, who said she could really see the difference in their data, so the, how families have engaged with their early childhood practitioners or their therapist, um, when they compare it to um, the different changes or the restrictions coming in. So when there's changes, families just um, go on the low down, they try and recalibrate, try and work out how they're going to juggle homeschooling, um, working from home, the changes when they're going to buy their groceries, when they're allowed out, when they're going to fit their hour of exercise in, all of those sorts of things. So they so they notice that they have a big impact on families and, and how families operate and how they engage with services. But then things Are do you seem... saying they don't engage when they're having to deal with that other stuff? Correct. Yeah. So when there's the when there's been announcements made for, they really see a big difference in their data and people drop off and they're not engaging with services. Classic Maslow, eh? Yeah, 100%, yeah. But then things even out and I think people, you know, reach out and, you know, work things out and see how they can re-engage with services. 
Um, I think um, we, we were talking a little bit before about school readiness funding, and I think that has really enabled allied health practitioners to engage with kinder kids, um, which, and to support early childhood services, kinder services to do that as well. So we've had some really positive stories around supporting um, educators that, that they've needed to pivot as well and work a little bit differently in this online space and provide a whole lot of different resources and, um, and um, you know, respond in that way. So what does that look like when um, people are working with children with, with inclusion needs online? I think it is um, working uh, with families and just working out um, that it is, you know, taking advantage of routines and the flow of the day, um, you know, taking advantage of things that you do as a family anyway and exploring learning opportunities in those spaces. Um, yeah, I think it's building the capacity of the educators to support families, to support their child's learning. Mm. It's a whole whole sort of scaffolded way of um, thinking about providing support for children in these circumstances, isn't it? Because the people who are providing the support need support to work in a different way. And so there's there's a whole there's a whole new area opening up. Yeah, that's right. So, Sarah, interestingly, the, the federal government not known, well, this this government anyway, not known for splashing cash on the early education sector if they can help it, has recently announced an increase to the inclusion uh, support program. Uh, again, a press release with not a huge amount of detail about how or why that's going to work, but is that something you were glad to see? I was glad to see that. Yep, and we shared that with our that members. Um, always welcome more money spent in the inclusion space, Liam. My Definitely. my view of that though was because um, I'm never happy with anything. So yes, extra money, but I immediately think of how I can get cranky at <laughs> the government about it. One of the and I should say, uh, you know, Sarah and I and Leanne and Lisa, I think as well. At all, at, at at one point in time, we're all working for the old inclusion and professional support program, which was the federal. Uh, federally funded uh, professional support and inclusion support uh, services to the sector. Crucially, they were together. So there was this acknowledgement that inclusion kind of needs professional development to sit alongside it and that um, professional development with an inclusion focus is great. So while I'm glad to see an increase to the inclusion support program, there's still, it's not, there's the, it, it, do you think that will work effectively when this, we still don't have, um, the professional support coordinator. So there used to be that funded national professional development fund and it sat together. And I've, I've, I'm yet to be convinced that separating those two things has is is a good thing for the sector. Uh, I think I 100% agree with you, but oh, Liam, I feel like that's a... That's a whole that's, episode on it. That's, that's, that's another show. Look, if they announced PD funding yeah, as well, I'd still be cranky. I lost that's something. it today about that because the Department of Education put out um, a, a statement today congratulating themselves because they'd taken 30,000 calls over the last month. Now, if you look at the fact that we've got 16,000 services, it means each service had to ring them t twice. This is ringing the CCMS helpline, the subsidy helpline right so 
in my mind, it's like, why are you actually boasting about that? Because you've made your comms so difficult, you've made the policy so difficult, you've made the funding so difficult that everyone's had to call you to work out what on earth you're on about, right? And I think that part of that too is that it's no longer filtered. I know that when Leanne and I used to work for a professional support coordinator, when something happened like a funding change, we'd break it down and send it out to people with lots of information about how they were supposed to implement it or how they could implement it so that people actually didn't have to read the 56 pages of FAQs. They could read the one-page summary of the 56 pages of FAQs. And you translated it into English for everyone, Lisa, which was much, much appreciated. <laughs> we or, did. or other languages as well. Or, yeah, yeah, very true. Other languages, yeah. And it just seems that without that, then everything like this that happens, COVID or, you know, some big new change, like it was the same when the Jobs for Families package first came through. It came through without those organisations that both speak government and speak sector to to translate it. And, and the, complexity of, the complexity of policy has increased as well. So the, it, it's kind of almost like commensurate with the reduction in the funding to translate that policy and the complexity of the policy has has gone out of control. I mean, sometimes when I read, I have to ask Liam and Lisa to break it down for me. <laughs> Look, Leanne, all you need it. to know is that it all revolves around allowable absences. <laughs> it's the first thing they ever announce, you know. If parents have allowable absences, all will be okay in the world. There is some, se- there is some senior person at the education department who honestly thinks that the allowable absences is the key to fixing every single issue the sector faces. And well, whenever somebody... It, yeah, it, it never works options it gives options but um the, it's a flow chart and the first thing is have you stuffed with the allowable absences actually, I, mean, I think that's something that's a good question to ask both sarah and sarah louise in have people navigating those what's been the response to navigating those things and knowing what to do and who do people turn to in in both spaces that you're working in so i'm working with a number of services who are quite big providers. So I think they're okay because they've got the infrastructure within their business model to break everything down and really filter it through to the coordinators. Um, But those standalone services, they do struggle. So, I mean, you know, we really encourage people to join their union because the union will break it down for you. So there is a lot of social media talk around the policies and what it means. Um, You know, the AAU are fantastic with breaking everything down into, you know, plain language. What they've done has been amazing, you know, and a big shout-out to Cara because, you know, um, like I don't know how services would get that information if she wasn't doing that role and if the union wasn't funding her to put out those information things. Absolutely, I agree, yeah. What about you, Sarah? Oh, I probably get more questions about the NDIS and unpacking that, which is, yeah, that's probably a different show as well. <laughs> you just tell them that nobody can unpack the NDIS <laughs> and move on. <laughs> well, it's probably important. We've sort of talked about educators and services. It's obviously very important we talk about children and whether that's, you know, the children 
that we we know and love ourselves and the ones that are probably somewhere in your lockdown houses right now and i'd be i'd be just interested to know what that's meant you know for you as professionals and, and as parents but you know for we the, this situation must be incredibly um uh you know it just i'm not sure what the words are but for children going through this at such a formative time in their lives and i and I, I was always interested in the announcement that you know that in melbourne that early education would be available to permitted um workers and for vulnerable children which is an, an interesting uh cohort i'm not sure how vulnerable children were defined and I'm, I'm, I'm still not entirely sure how that's defined based on what i've read and seen but we know that what well, we know from the first phase of COVID, and I imagine it's equally true in this one, is that children who are already at risk and already um, at risk of being disadvantaged or uh, marginalised or vulnerable uh, will have be disproportionately impacted by events like these. Um, so, you know, maybe Sarah Louise, picking on you, you, you have children in this early education age bracket. Um, how, I mean, how are you finding it just navigating this time as a parent, but also... <laughs> You know, what are you seeing in services, how they're working with children during this time? And are, are we seeing that children are being affected by, by what's happening? So I'll start with that. I don't think children are being affected who are attending. I think they're fine. I think our educators across Melbourne are doing an absolutely amazing job and absolute kudos to everybody who's still there face-to-face every day. Um, but for those children that are at home, I mean, I think of my own children and I, you know, I'm very fortunate I am a working parent, so I've got the means to be able to provide, you know, a nice residence for the children, um, you know, lots of toys, technology, everything that they kind of need to keep them going during this time. But then in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, gosh, I'm so fortunate because not every family is going to be like this. There will be families that don't have books on their bookshelf to be able to sit and read to their children as, you know, just quite a small thing. Um, so that inequality right now is what's worrying me and what I'm really thinking about but those children who are there face to face I think they're going to be okay yeah I think that's that's interesting because that's what um Tamika said didn't she she was talking about the resilience of children yeah it's interesting I've I'm hearing slightly different things from New South Wales educators um and it was interesting they said when after the first lockdown, then when children went back to services, all was fine. But now, you know, like five or six weeks on, children are breaking down in ways that they didn't expect. And they said it was things like, um, you know, like some parents were trying to parent too hard during the lockdown mm-hmm. and so um, the children were kind of like re- responding with the feeling that they had to be someone other than the, what they were or they were seeing, um, you know, tension arise between their families and they held that together once they went back because of the excitement of being back and seeing their friends, etc. But then suddenly, um, you know, they were falling apart. Or in um, preschools that had, you know, like that only have the children for a year or two, the pecking orders were really disrupted within the group. And so whereas, um, you know, someone had left as king of the heap and came back and discovered that, they no longer, you know, they weren't being given that um, role by other children who had 
because they'd had more time with mum and dad over the lockdown, suddenly had a sense of self, then they were, um, you know, that was all, there was new positioning, etc. And the, the few educators that I've spoken to about it said it really surprised them that it was a delayed reaction and a multifaceted, like, you know, like things that they just hadn't even thought would be a problem, you know, was suddenly an issue. Well, so that is fascinating, yeah. So I do wonder at the end of the lockdown if we're going to see similar results in Melbourne. Well, Sarah, Sarah, it might be hard to answer this question given we're kind of in the middle of it now, but from, you know, an inclusion and early intervention perspective, are you, in terms of the discussions you're having with, with services and professionals, are you, is that something that's, that's, that's coming through to you, the impact on children? I think um, today I had a few conversations with some people around families having conversations with their kinder about having a second year of kinder. So I think some families are starting to think, um, you know, this this year's too hard, we might do it again next year. But, of course, they need to meet those requir- requirements to have the second year of kinder. Um, but, yeah, so I, so, I'm think, yeah, so I think some families are starting to... Um, I guess spending more time with their children, noticing more around their development and how they're developing, um, how their school or their early childhood service might be, um, you know, working with their child around their development as well. So I think um, COVID sort of shone a light on that and um, families, I think, are seeing their child in different ways. I was going to mention as well before, um, I agree with, Sarah Louise as well. Um, I think it's really interesting. I was at a forum where the Raising Children Network were talking about the different hits on their website, like what had really peaked during COVID. And they talked about there was a massive increase on people searching up um, calming children, helping babies settle, babies sleeping, um, keeping toddlers engaged and active. So um, to me, that sounds like a lot of kind of stressed people at home like and maybe it's the worried well but you know I just imagine you know mums and dads searching those things up um in the evening um you're just you know trying to well that intense interaction I suppose does raise that um level of of um stress in the in the household and hopefully they found the answers to those questions online I hope I'm hoping as well. I think it has also been challenging for families from um, cold backgrounds. I think Mm. um, the information that has been sent out within Mm. Victoria has been a very sort of top-down approach. I think you have to be the type of person like me who go, oh, obviously Dan Andrews is having a media conference. I better stop what I'm doing and, you know, watch television to catch up with what's happening. You know, there's, you know, I think if you're, not engaging with um, the media that way, it's really hard to, to keep on track of changes and what's happening and how that's going to affect you. And I think those, I think that sort of thing's really stressful for families and particularly if you're from a cold background, how you might um, engage with that. I know from a um, an allied health perspective as well, it's been the use of interpreters in telehealth has been challenging 
as well. That's something I hear a lot from um, from my from my members, and I also wonder what that's like from homeschooling as well. How how um, kinders and early childhood services are engaging with interpreters in a in a learning from home model as well. Google Translate can only get you so far. I was going to say I don't think I know anyone who's engaging with interpreters for their home learning programs. Yeah, it's it's this COVID's exposed a lot of flaws that we have in um, all of these processes, and those issues are there. They're just maybe more, you know, apparent in this. But let's hope that the attention to these things is sustained, so that perhaps you know it, it becomes it becomes business as usual when we consider everybody in the picture and whatever their needs are. Why would you think that? Oh, would I'm an optimist. Well, maybe it's up to us to just, you know, keep it up there at the forefront <laughs> again. Don't know. Well, I think in terms of thinking about what changes may or may not happen, um, once we get Leanne in charge of, you know, um, early education policy, we'll uh, we can get that stuff sorted pretty quickly, I suspect. But until then. Um, one of the things I think we wanted to and probably finish off tonight, maybe talking to both Sarah and Sarah Louise, was trying to think ahead a bit. So we're, we're seeing positive numbers at the moment. From Victoria, we know things can change really quickly, but as we record this on a on a Wednesday night, it's looking like the the intense lockdown will eventually you know get those numbers down to a manageable level, and we'll be returning to some whatever normal is at, at the moment. Um, but you know, maybe Sarah Louise, I might start with you. What, in terms of the work you do and the conversations you're having with people in the sector, you know, what do you think will be some of the long-term impacts or changes, or what do you think will come out of this pretty unique time? I think in at least Victoria's early education history. Hmm. So I'm I'm pretty positive, and I've got a pretty you know a good outlook on this. Sarah Louise, I, I want to introduce you to Leanne. So she's your, you might, you, that must be why you listen to the show. So I'm sorry you have to listen to Lisa and I as well sometimes. It's good to get a balance. It's all in balance. I know. Yeah. That's why I hang around too. Um, but what I'm, what I'm thinking we're going to see is educators being really innovative. So we're going to see, you know, children who perhaps can't be attending all the time, you know, for their kinder year or, you know, um, in their, you know, childcare period, but we're going to see educators still engaging with those families, which I don't think we've ever seen before. I mean, I was an educator on the floor for 10 years before I went into management and it never occurred to me to engage with families who maybe weren't coming for a little while. You know, you do the check-in phone call, but there wouldn't be anything through, you know, whatever apps you were using if you're using StoryPark or even just emails. So I think we're going to see some real innovation in practice through the digital world, which I, I'm just so excited by. And I think we're going to see a lot of people start to engage more in professional development because they've got more access to things now. There are more webinars out there. There's more Zoom networks. Everything's kind of online and accessible. So I think we're going to see people actually really engage and connect, which is just going to be absolutely amazing. Okay, I'd like to see some research, really hard research done on the um, effectiveness of professional development delivered via webinar as yeah. opposed to face-to-face. I, I agree, Lisa. Now's the time to do that because I don't. I think that it, it's also done differently now to the way it might have been done 10 years ago. But um, Sarah Louise, 
I'm up for some research on this. Let's get <laughs> All together. All right, let's do it. <laughs> I think coaching is a really good space yeah. to do online. And so if we could convince people to stop thinking of professional development as one-hour webinars and think instead of it as a ongoing series of coaching engagements then we might I think that that's I think that is what has probably changed and I'm sure Sarah Louise has a perspective on this but I think that has actually changed even if people are going to webinars and or whatever you know online stuff they're going to and then they're coming back for more they're almost in this kind of professional learning community and it's an ongoing conversation that they have and I agree Lisa coaching and, and mentoring is the way to go as well. Yeah this idea of professional development I feel almost needs to go hand in hand with networking um, you know some of the sessions that I run you know, it, it's a webinar, it's, you know, it's an hour, it's whatever, but then there's opportunity afterwards to talk about it and to connect with other people who have participated in that as well. So I think it kind of does go hand in hand. Mm. Yeah. It's fascinating feedback from you, Lisa, given you've run no less than three amazing online conferences in the past five months or whatever. Yeah, but none of them were professional development. They were information giving sessions. Oh, yeah. oh, we'll, oh we'll, okay, we'll have this semantics discussion later, Lisa. I look forward to that. We'll, yeah, we'll go on to that another time. All right, moving swiftly along from that semantic distinction. Uh, Sarah, what, what about for you? What are you anticipating, hoping, imagining? Yeah, We've I, had the optimistic view, Sarah. Can you please be pessimistic yeah. so Lisa and I are not outvoted? Because I agree with Sarah Louise as well. I, um, um, in a conversation I had today with DUT, they also said they recently surveyed um, providers and they were saying that 80% of them overwhelmingly said that they wanted to hold on to this new way of engaging with families and different ways of gauge, engaging with families and connecting closely with them in their homes basically so they wanted to hold on to that which sounded like such a blast from the past to me when people used to actually do home visits way yes. back when in um, yes. long daycare yeah when you were getting to know families um so I thought oh that's you know we've come back so that was good um I think in the early intervention space definitely holding on to telepractice models and um, we just need to work out how we can um, all the service systems can connect up. I think we're just um, in survival mode at, at the moment, but the next step is to make sure that we we do have that wrap around um, the team around the child, team around the family approach to service delivery and we're, we're less siloed in this new world. Yeah, and I, I think that... The, uh... It's so hard to believe that will ever happen. Well, I think some of the telehealth type stuff is very interesting and I've spoken with a couple of people um, not early childhood specific one child and family um, sorry ch children yeah child and family nurse and also someone in the states who works with families in trauma and they've actually been able to connect up better with families because they are not actually going into their homes and I think that's really interesting because they are able to um, but people don't feel like they have to have their home in a particular shape in order for to receive some a visit from someone, from a, a professional, an allied health professional, and they they also don't have to prepare. They can come straight on and have that conversation. Now, I don't know about the long-term issue of that. I'm sure that there are things that could go wrong in that 
arrangement or that it's, you know, you don't continue that connection. But mm. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. It's interesting to think, think about it. I think there'll need to be some sort of um, a fusion of all the models together, mm. a mixture of home visits and um, visits to where children are naturally, where they learn naturally, kinder, long daycare, play groups, um, as well as telehealth. I think it can all be in the mix, it can be a fusion of all of those things. But I've, I've heard the same, um, providers are given the same feedback, that families, it's more intentional, that it's more, you really do need to have a capacity building approach with families. Um, it's, it's not like you can, I guess in a home setting you might um, get distracted or talk about other things or you really are you know, focused on those um, um, the capacity building approaches. All right, Lisa. We'll let the optimists have the day today. I think we'll Yay. have to. Look, look at them. Yeah, well, it's, it's three to two. It's three to two. <laughs> it's three they to two. just get hurt more often than we do, Liam. <laughs> but we bounced back. We bounced. Just back. because we're bitter and cynical, Lisa, we don't have to. We don't have to make everyone else. Well, um, before we wrap up this discussion, I think both Lisa and Leanne have uh, a little bit of. This is like throwback to the old news list that we had to. That was like my favourite part of the show, but no one else seemed to like it, so we did ditch it eventually and just went straight to the interviews. But we've got oh, a couple of. I loved that. I, Leanne, I, loved I did that, too. Liam. I don't know. I, did. I did not love it. No, no, no. <laughs> Listeners, not the not not us. Oh, we loved it. I loved going through the news. No one asked me. I loved uh, it. Sarah, maybe we'll have to bring it back. Well, just for you, Sarah Lou, we're we're bringing news list back and we're doing it at the end of the episode this time. But Lisa and Leanne both independently had some exciting things to. To share. So, Leanne, do you want to share this exciting event first? Yes, this is an opportunity. It's a free opportunity and it's coming out of Victoria, which makes it extra special. I don't know whether uh, people have already heard about this. It's called Three-Year-Olds in Early Childhood Education, a dialogue about a paradox in play. So this is a focus on the um, increasing interaction of three-year-olds with early childhood education and we um, there is... Uh, Dr. Sheena Elwick and Professor Jane White, who are going to be talking about this to have a conversation. It's just one hour and it's put on by OMEP Victoria. So you might want to join OMEP as well for extra excitement, but you don't have to be a member to do this. Um, and Liam, you're going to put the flyer up online so people can register for free. And it's just thinking about policy, it's thinking about practice. Um, and the complexities associated with three-year-olds in early childhood education settings, which I love, you know, this idea that we're focused on fours, now we're going to threes, then we'll go to babies. <laughs> we're getting there. I remembered why we stopped doing the news list because I had to, we had to have the news items organised and then I had to have all the links ready to go on the show notes. So it was pure laziness on my part. <laughs> but uh, Now, Lisa, we spent a lot of the history of this podcast not being very nice to the New South Wales government about their early education funding. But So we, we had to share this pretty, pretty exciting bit of positive news, didn't we? Yes, they're going to fund services, preschool services, community-based preschools, of which there's 700-odd across New South Wales, to provide free preschool for another term, Yay. so for the end of the year. So they did provide it during the lockdown and during COVID, and once again it was complex funding situations. If um, You could get additional money if you weren't eligible for JobKeeper, but if you got JobKeeper, you couldn't get the money, but... Therefore, they could only persuade those that did get the money to give free preschool, but the others almost had to give free preschool because if every childcare service was giving free pre free um, 
uh, early education care, then they wouldn't have had anyone turn up. So it um, it was complex then, but um, at the end of it, it was you know going to end some services charge fees or part fees for term three, and most of them were thinking that they'd um, start charging again in term four. The Labor Party um, made a big push and kept demanding repeatedly that it um, that services be funded to provide free preschool for the final um, terms of the year. And today the minister announced that, the, that they would do it. They haven't announced the detail and the devil is always in the detail. But interestingly, I had to have a bit of a go online because there were so many people saying, oh, yeah, but why aren't they doing it for, for you know, those that are getting their preschool through long daycare education or yeah, but what about, you know, are they doing anything for the educators or are they doing it, you know, like why won't they do it permanently? Why is it only for one term or why isn't the federal government giving money towards it? All of which are valid questions. But I just said, look, when a politician does something good, can we just say, yay, good on you, you know, treat them like a toddler, you know, treat them like a two-year-old, <laughs> reinforce positive behaviour and, you know, be really good and then you can go back and say all those other things because if they just get smashed every time they do it or worse, ignored, if the, the offering is just taken and ignored, then they'll never do it again. And Look, I'm hearing that this is a philosophical change from Lisa Bryant. So <laughs> I did wonder, like, have I always been bitter and horrible, and am I just being nice now? Yeah, I think worn you down. I I just want to be clear that the the comparison between toddlers and politicians is not the approved parenting strategy of the early education show. So I just want to put that out there, at Lisa's. And I, yes, exactly. With the opinions. Oh, the Honourable Lisa Bryant herself. That's right. <laughs> hang on, hang on. I've heard Scott Morrison be as petulant as any child. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, um, so very exciting. We will have links uh, in the show notes. I promise to be that organised. We will have them up there. If you are desperate for the news list to come back, you know, this is your comment on when this episode comes out and yes. I will force myself to bring it we back. We loved it. We had articles from The Conversation. We had The Atlantic. We, oh, we had more articles from The Conversation. More articles from The Conversation. More articles from The Conversation. Anyway, maybe it can come back. We will we'll do that. But anyway, but we've kept Sarah and Sarah and Louise quite late tonight for another excellent discussion um, Sarah, Sarah Louise thank you so much for, for joining us for this discussion thank you all so much thanks Liam Leanne and Lisa you have been listening to the early education show you can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com the show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.